0: Blog Talk Radio. so you want your charity to succeed it's no secret that combining online and offline techniques is the key to modern day fundraising success and practical advice is what you need the nonprofit coach with Ted Hart is the perfect place to learn from experts around the world who along with our host provide advice you can use Ted Hart is without a doubt one of the foremost nonprofit thought leaders. Also, a successful author, his books cover a broad range of topics from major gift fundraising to use of social media and how to succeed online. Ted lectures around the world, but now he's here for you. From the latest in charity news, technology, fundraising, and social networking, Ted and his guests help you maneuver through this economic downturn in the charitable sector to greater levels of efficiency and fundraising success. Remember, this is a live call-in show. Become part of the show by adding your voice. Call now at 347-324-3080. After the show, you can find all our podcasts at tedhart.com. Just click on radio links. Don't forget to dial 347-324-3080. Now, welcome the host of The Nonprofit Coach, Ted Hart.
3: And welcome here to The Nonprofit Coach. As the announcer said, this is a live call-in show, so we encourage you to call in at 347-324-3080. When we get to our page two expert today, you'll be able to ask questions directly of our guest Just make sure that you press number one to raise your hand on the switchboard to let us know that you would like to ask a question. You can also join us over in the chat room. I see several folks over there. You can ask questions in the chat room, or you can ask questions by emailing me at at tedhart.com. Today is Tuesday, May 15th. I'm coming to you live from the National Headquarters of the Charities Aid Foundation of America. You can find us online at cafamerica.org. That's C-A-F, as in Frank, America.org. As always here on the Nonprofit Coach, we start with Page One News. <laughs> You can follow along uh, with the radio links today at tedhart.com. Click on radio. Uh, You'll see the bright yellow where you can follow along with our radio links, as always. You'll also find all of the archives of all the terrific links from our prior shows. Here on the Nonprofit Coach, we're going to start off with uh, news from the Washington Post, good news for nonprofits who are expecting a better year. Last year was another difficult one uh, for Washington-area nonprofits, as many took in fewer dollars and had to eat more into their rainy day reserves. But according to a new study, there's reason to believe that the tides may be starting to turn uh, in 2012. Across the country, we're seeing more donations come in, both online and offline. According to a canvas of community organizations in the Washington, D.C. region, nearly half reported that their donations, uh, that the donors had expressed uh, interest in maintaining or increasing uh, their contributions compared to only 27 last year, and that's been reported by the Center for Nonprofit uh, Advancement. So check that out. Read uh, through why things are looking up and where the bright points are for nonprofits in the Washington, D.C. area at tedhart.com. Next up here on uh, the, the radio links, uh, it's always a pleasure to uh, welcome friends uh, here to, uh, to the Nonprofit Coach. Uh, today we have uh, Michael Baker is with us. Uh, Michael is uh, here to chat with us about a very important and innovative conference uh, that's going to be taking place next month. Michael, welcome here to the Nonprofit Coach. Tell us all about the Techno Conference.
2: Oh, Ted, uh, thanks so much. We really appreciate it. Well, we're really excited. We've got the uh, the first ever um, AFP Techno Conference happening June 4th and 5th at the Gaylord Palms in Orlando. And uh, we are so excited because there are hundreds of professionals that have signed up for this to learn about um, what's new in social media and technology and for fundraising and what you can use and how you can implement it. Uh, It's a great conference designed truly so that it's an interactive learning experience and people will be able to connect with the cutting-edge technology um, and, and do things, you know, learn things that they don't know. They'll be able to actually leave uh, the conference with practical solutions that they can actually take back to their development office and implement. Uh, and, and we're well, well excited And just about
3: as it. a teaser, uh, I've, uh, I'm just finishing up my presentation. Of course, I want to have the very latest information in my presentation uh, for the Techno Conference. Uh, one of the things that I'll be providing on a very practical level for folks is a four-year step-by-step plan to roll out your social media and integrate with your traditional and online fundraising. And that's the kind of practical sort of things that you're bringing about in this conference, is it not?
2: That is right, that is right. We're very excited. And for for anyone who has seen um, Ted, you present, um, it's always a treat because they get that step-by-step and they can walk away with actually these tools on how to do it. Um, I know I have used your suggestions over the years um, with clients and they're spot on, everything that you share. We're we're excited because the level of speakers that we have. Um, of course, we have a Ted Hart um, level speaker, and the same as a Carlos Dominguez, Dominguez excuse me, from Cisco Systems, uh, that opens the conference. And throughout the conference, we've got folks like Laura Howe from the American Red Cross, who's going to talk about how the the campaign for Haiti, uh, the tweeting campaign, was engaged, and folks can learn about that. Uh, to really wrapping up the conference. With Steve Wozniak, who's the co-founder of Apple, so we've got such a high level of speakers, uh, we are thrilled. This is going to be an excellent, excellent uh, conference.
3: Now, as you mentioned, this is the uh, the first time for uh, for this conference. We have provided a direct link to the AFP Techno Conference uh, website in the radio links today, available at tedhart. dot com, so folks can go check out uh, the entire schedule and register uh, to attend. Uh, now, this is the very first time AFP has attempted to do something this ambitious in this space. Uh, why technology and why now?
2: Well, what's happening is technology is, is coming into every part of the development shop. So people, no matter what level you're at, whether you're at the, the high VP, chief development officer level, where you really know about, need to know about the strategic pieces of, of fundraising, where technology integrates into it, or down to the, the development officer role, um, and even the database position, you know, all of those pieces are key. Uh, The communication aspect of how um, donors are engaged on social media, there's a a whole aspect of technology that we need to be prepared for. Um, And and the reason we're doing it is because we want to make sure we're providing that educational service and offering to our constituents, both our members and our non-members. And I can tell you by the registration, we're very excited. Um, People are signing up for this conference. It's going to be uh, a fantastic event. What I would suggest is anybody who uh, clicks through, um, Ted, on your link to the AFP Techno Conference and wants to look at registration, uh, we are opening, registration is open through this Friday through the 18th. So please, if you're going to register, I encourage you to do it beforehand. And uh, it's a lot of opportunities for everybody to go away learning. Well, was great. so unique... reg-
3: are you saying registration closes on Friday the 18th? It,
2: it does. It does. Just because of the volume of people and the the, the how big this conference is, we need, we need a little bit of time to get ourselves prepared um so, with all so the that. So that leads uh
3: one to uh to believe that uh, this is about ready to to sell out and folks should get online today if they want to get to, uh, to this conference in Orlando. What are the dates of the actual conference?
2: So the conference itself is June 4th and June 5th. That's the program. We are. This is a unique conference because it's the first time that we've actually partnered with a a large um, chapter group of chapter conferences. So Planet Philanthropy um, is happening on June 2nd through June 4th, and that is the entire state of Florida. Instead of doing uh, 10 different conferences, because there's about 10 different chapters in the state of Florida, they do one annually called Planet Philanthropy, and we're actually um, we're, we're tagged up next. They end and we start. But what we decided to do, because AFP, you know, us all of us AFPers, we're real friendly. We want to we want to talk and network. So on the third, on Sunday, June third at five thirty, we actually have a joint conference reception. So uh, which could be upwards of a thousand people. So which will be great because you'll get a chance to meet and network and share, uh, you know, who you are, and those folks who are going to both conferences will receive a discount. So we're real excited about that. The Florida contingent has been. Um, fantastic in helping us plan this. There's been a great group of volunteers that have helped put together Techno, and, of course, the, the AFP Association staff have been really great. And But I encourage everybody, if you want to go, sign up now. Um, you can sign up on-site, like any conference that we have. It will be a little more money. But um, I would suggest you go and do it now. Book yourself your rooms, and come and enjoy a great conference. Of course, we've got, you know, the Twitter feed going, the Facebook feed going, so I encourage everybody to – you know, to look at the hash, hashtag AFPTechno. Um, if you're looking at some of the Twitter that's coming out, you could learn about the speakers. Of course, we know about you, Ted, uh, but someone might want to know about Laura, Laura Howe from the American Red Cross. They can check it out, go on to the AFPTechno.org website and click on Laura and learn about her and uh, all the other information that we have. We've got such a great lineup from Alice Ferris and Jim Anderson at Goldbusters uh, to Tim Couturin from Pursuant and some folks from other organizations that are really going to bring, I think, um, this conference to a higher level, and especially with technology. You know, you want to be able to walk away from a conference with practical solutions.
3: This yeah, practical will, and realistic solutions, and I'm so right. pleased to see the uh, the wide range of voices that are coming because I think there is a lot being uh, thrown at nonprofit executives right now, and the the real issue is, how do you integrate, and how do you succeed. So uh, we encourage everyone to uh, uh, join uh, me and to uh, join Michael uh, down in Orlando for the AFP Techno Conference. Uh, you can find the link over in the radio links today at tedhart.com. Make sure you register by Friday. Uh, you don't want to be caught uh, attending a technology conference and not having registered online. So let's make sure that we do that. Michael, thank you for joining me here on the Nonprofit hey, Great uh, to uh, always have Michael here. He always brings us uh, great information uh, about uh, important conferences. So, Michael, you are always welcome here on The Nonprofit Coach. Next up in the radio links today, you'll find over from the Chronicle of Philanthropy, a Facebook promotion connects a charity with loyal donors. Um, It was a television campaign commercial that first inspired David Lewis and his wife, Stacy, to donate money to Child Fund International in 1999 and become sponsors of a needy child and it was Facebook post that helped send mr. Levis to Uganda to meet five of their sponsored uh, children this April so a wonderful story that's uh, covered over uh, you can also click and see uh, a uh, uh, video uh, from uh, their uh, trip to Uganda uh, but a great way to uh, combine uh, your charity with philanthropy and Facebook Uh, uh, provided that connection while we're talking about facebook i'm going to share a little audio clip uh, with you and then i'll be right back if you can't guess why i'm sharing this clip Message uh, goes out to Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg is the uh, man of the hour. Uh, His birthday is on Monday, and he turns the ripe old age of 28. Uh, And as he is turning 28, he will become even wealthier uh, through the IPO for Facebook that is currently being sold and is anticipated to be sold out in advance uh, of its entry onto the NASDAQ. Current estimate that I've seen uh, is that this IPO. Uh, will bring in about $12 billion. So uh, uh, good job there, Mr. Zuckerberg. Lots of uh, uh, critics, lots of fans, but it's hard to deny the success of 900 million people using anything. Uh, with 900 million users of Facebook, uh, it is a challenge uh, to establish web businesses such as Google and Yahoo for customers' uh, time online and advertising and Facebook Uh, has um, just gone over $1 billion uh, in revenue uh, in uh, its uh, latest quarter. So uh, good luck uh, on the IPO, and happy birthday uh, to Mark Zuckerberg. Back over here on the Nonprofit Coach, over in the radio link, uh, you will find uh, over from one of the smartest websites on the Internet, Mashable.com, you'll find over in their social media tab a Twitter campaign that allows you to donate Your unused characters, that means uh, you have 140 characters with Twitter, let me tell you all about this. You can help out charities by donating those unused characters. So uh, forget old clothing and canned food. You can now donate your unused Twitter characters to a good cause. A new application called Hashtags for Heroes auto-populates the unused characters in your tweets with messages ranging from awareness for wounded uh, warrior Project an organization seeking to honor and empower veterans wounded since 9-11. So uh, check out the information about this new uh, Twitter app uh, that will allow you to donate uh, your unused Twitter characters. Uh, The most common length of tweets is 28 characters, according to one estimate, uh, leaving a lot of room on many tweets uh, for you to be able to help out a worthy cause. Check it out over in the radio links today over at Ted Hart, uh, at tedhart.com. Next up here, and you'll find over in the radio links, we want to draw attention to our own LinkedIn group. Over on LinkedIn, we host the People to People fundraising, social media and online success for nonprofits uh, group over on LinkedIn. We now have over 1,747 members uh, of that group, quite active, lots of folks uh, who are sharing very good information uh, and news there. So if you are not part of that a global group of folks uh, who are interested in online social media and fundraising success, uh, check it out over in the radio links today. Make sure you sign up and uh, enjoy the camaraderie with your colleagues over on LinkedIn. That's what we've got here today for uh, the Page 1 news. That means it's time for Page 2. <laughs> a pleasure to welcome Julia Ingram Walker here on the AFP Wiley radio show. Today is our special segment set aside for our partnership with AFP Wiley, where we promote their expert authors uh, in a variety of very different topics. Uh, Julia has been a development professional based in New Orleans for over 25 years. Uh, She's developed an expertise in capital campaigns. She's well known for major gifts and working with nonprofit boards. She holds an MBA and spent the first half of her career at Tulane University, uh, where she served as vice president for advancement and raised over $300 million, including funding for eight buildings on campus. Uh, Julia has been an independent fundraising consultant for the past 12 years. Her clients are varied and include the National World War II Museum, the Louisiana SPCA, New Orleans City Park, and the Navajo Code Talkers Foundation. Julia has published um, several fundraising books and lectures nationally on topics related to capital campaigns, major gifts, and, as we mentioned, working with nonprofit boards. Her new book, The Fundraising Guide for Nonprofit Board Members, uh, has just been released and is the reason why she's our guest today. Uh, But I know that a number of our listeners today are also fans of Julia's other books, Uh, So this is a wide-ranging discussion today, and welcome here to the nonprofit coach, uh, Julia Ingram-Walker. Thank you for joining us.
4: Thank you so much, Ted. I'm pleased to be back.
3: Yeah, it's great to have you back here on the show. You always bring uh, some of the uh, most important, and uh, we were mentioning on page one, I'm sure you were listening, the AFP Techno Conference is coming up, and they put an emphasis on practical uh, information. And I know that's really a hallmark of your work as well, uh, no Pie in the Sky with You. These are things that work. So why Fundraising Guide for Nonprofit Boards uh, as uh, the newest book?
4: Well, you know, that's a good question. I, um, I, As you pointed out, I've been fundraising about 25 years, and one of the things I've noticed is that even the best campaigns can go astray if the board doesn't really get behind it in the right way and, and develop a strategy to involve not just the development committee but the whole board in your uh, campaign outreach. And I've also found that some organizations with very strong boards can um, really surpass what you think would be their fundraising limitations, because they don't have much staff. So uh, I thought it was time to kind of look at the role that boards play, you know, how how they can encourage uh, more fundraising, how they can be used to, to uh, enhance outreach in the community, how to engage your board, how to get your board to start giving, you know, all those things that all of us face every day, you know, as practical problems of fundraising.
3: And, and in looking at those practical uh, issues as you were preparing for uh, for this book, what are some of the things that are most problematic for nonprofit executives when it comes to working with boards?
4: Well, uh, some people have an easier time with their boards than others. And, of course, you know, it all starts with who's on the board. So, I would start at the very beginning with the nominating process, you know, how you choose your board members. My um, my big interest there is in um, urging boards to stretch themselves a little and bring in people who aren't quite like themselves. You know, we all talk about diversity, meaning diversity of race or sexual orientation or whatever, but I'm also interested in diversity of age. You know, I'm, I've dealt with some boards where everybody there is 55 and older, and you talked to them about social networking, and they don't—they don't even know what you're talking about. They think it means going to a cocktail party.
3: And so of course, uh, going to cocktail parties—there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, but social media has a, 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 an important role to play in all aspects of nonprofit life today. Um, some of the things I was hoping that uh, we'd get a chance to uh, to cover today is to get to some of those practical tips that you uh, that you have, um, and in advance of uh, of the show today. Uh, We actually had a number of people uh, who had uh, written to me interested in this book and other books of of yours, um, specific to uh, your point on the nominating process. How does fundraising fit into your decisions about the nominating process? What's appropriate, what's not, uh, and what decisions should be made?
4: Well, um, Ted, I feel like the best model is to have the development um, leader, let's call him the development CEO, um, take uh, a role in the nominating committee, and that is to say either submitting names or actually being there at committee meetings to discuss candidates.
3: And how me- common would you say that is? Because, of course, you know, it, it, to, to have a disconnect to say we're going to recruit board members and we're going to expect them to be involved with fundraising, yet the development office has no involvement in the nominating process, that's quite a large disconnect, but isn't that more common than you'd like to to think?
4: Yes, it's common, but I guess that's part of the point of of why I chose to write the book, is to explain that development needs to be, development thinking needs to be integrated into every aspect of board policy and board nomination. That if we really expect our boards to become more active in fundraising, we have to think about how we bring people in, how we train them, you know, how we select them for board positions has to be done in such a way that it supports the development effort. Otherwise, you get a bunch of people who really don't have any interest in development or perhaps even have an antipathy towards raising money, which I've certainly seen on boards. And, um, you know, then the development committee is told, you know, well, work with them. You know, find a way to, to manage this board, which is unwieldy and, you know, uninterested. Uh, so I think I think it starts with the CEO and the board chair getting together and making some decisions about what is the role of their board and how do they want it to interface and interact with a, with their development staff and their development work.
3: And in doing that, um, what's and I'm sure you're asked this question a lot, because I know I am. Uh, what's the optimum size?
4: Oh, you know, it's hard to say. I've I've worked with boards that have 15 people that are very effective, and I and I have a, a client now that has a board with 50 people, 50 and they're very effective. Um now the group that has the 52 member board is a national group and they and these members come from all over the country. Um usually about half of them meet in person and the other half uh, are involved in a conference call as as a, as a supporting part of the board but not necessarily there in person. So you don't always have face-to-face contact if you have a board that big. Um but my my basic um comfort zone is between uh, 15 and 25.
3: Yeah, and why fifteen to twenty-five? Because I, you know, I, I tend to agree. I maybe I, I, I tend to think on the lower end there, but it, it depends on how active your committees can be, and that really comes down to the art of leadership, doesn't it?
4: Yes. Well, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna move back to something I started talking about, which is diversity. One of the things that I would like to see people think about is the sectors that their board people can engage. For instance. Um, Let's say that you have a board of 15, and three of the people are corporate people, and they can help you engage in the corporate world of in your community and and corporate outreach and corporate giving. But maybe there's two or three that um, uh, really could be engaged in the foundation world, you know, and have a foundation background or, or, or access to trustees and family foundations. So I'm thinking that you know you want a board of around 15 to 20 because you want to reach into different sectors of your community in order to develop. Those um, connections that lead to support and that lead to fundraising and that lead to advancing your cause.
3: And and how do you decide or how, is there an optimum level of diversity or um, is how tied is that to the community that you serve? Because as you were mentioning earlier, you you use the word diversity very broadly.
4: Well, um, I find that people. You know, maybe this is a truism, but I find that people, um, for the most part, are comfortable with people who are like themselves. And so you tend to have a board that replicates itself. You know, if there's a lot of old white guys on the board, they tend to bring in old white guys because that's who they know, and that's who they're comfortable with. And so what I find is you have to press a little for them to bring in a different generation or add more women or add more, um, you know, corporate members, if it's more of a social group, that, that there has to be some some – some uh, push to stretch um, the comfort zone of board members in in allowing different agreement, different disagreements, and allowing people who bring new ideas. And,
3: and in in uh, looking at those uh, those new ideas and breaking out of that, do you find that it's hard for for boards to to do that themselves, or for staff members to be able to affect that kind of change? And how often do you? feel outside counsel is the answer to to breaking through that diversity mold.
4: Well, um you know the old joke uh, about how you can't change um you know uh, someone who doesn't want to change. Um uh, my 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 thinking on that is that there has to be some feeling on the part of the board leadership, let's call it the executive committee and the board chair himself, that what they're doing right now isn't working quite right. For instance, many boards now are challenged on the um, fiscal side. You know, let's face it, times are tough. It's, you know, it's hard out there. It's hard to raise money. It's hard. They're losing grants. They're losing government support. You know, there might be, there might need to be a crisis, actually, to be honest, to shake up some of these boards that have been, you know, very complacent. But once they realize that there needs to be some change, then I think there's room there for the development staff, the CEO, and a good consultant to come in and work with them on making that change a positive value for the organization.
3: Right, and, and but that's a, that's that's also a long-term game. That's not that's not something that you flip a, a switch at. That that takes time. So for our listeners today who sort of put that on the to-do list to work on diversity and to grow and change their board, um, because it might. My, well, actually, let me ask the question this way. My sense, or when I'm working with boards of directors, is is I I try to help them be realistic by saying it's generally a three year process to really dynamically change a board. It's not, you know, obviously you could have a crisis, you could have a mass exodus, you could have, you know, lots of things could happen that can shake things up much quicker. But in a natural flow and engaging leadership in a, a constructive way, it's usually a three-year cycle before you have that new leadership in place.
4: I think three years is a fair um, uh, a fair amount of time, but I have seen boards move much faster. I worked with an interesting board here in New Orleans uh, for the Lighthouse for the Blind, and they, they made a decision to hire a new development director. And the development director came in, and she was concerned that some of the board members had different ideas about how they should be employed in the raising of money and what board members should give was a a point of conflict and how much board members should be involved in development was a point of conflict. There really wasn't what I would call sort of a well-oiled relationship between the board and the development operation. So she brought me in as a consultant and we spent about four hours in a board retreat. Um, You know, just working through some basic issues like how much should the board give um, you know, what should be the board relationship to the development staff? Is the board supposed to bring prospects in or is the development staff supposed to give them lists of prospects? You know, what kinds of things could the board do to enhance outreach in the community and what would that look like? So, you know, you can get you can get board buy in with a, a change um that's as minor in some ways as just changing a staff person. And this board I think changed its entire approach and its entire level of activity, really in a period of about six months.
3: Yeah, well, that, that's I, I I would tend to say that's quite aggressive, um, but that that can be done if you if you have inspired leadership that's willing to put the energy into it, um, but it, but that would be an awful lot of effort, wouldn't you think?
4: Yes, but some groups need a lot of effort. You know, um, there are changes as I pointed out fiscally. The environment has become very competitive. You know, my my thinking, and and I think those of many others in the field is that if you're if you're not changing and you're not moving, um, you know, you're going to die.
3: Right. Well, that's particularly true in in the nonprofit sector today with so much competition um, and so many things changing uh, with uh, the integration of the Internet into fundraising and in management.
4: I couldn't agree more. I think that that's one reason to have younger members on your board. You know, I mentioned that, that an age disparity is an important one. And, you know, it seems to me that, um, on the boards that I've been involved in, it's the younger board members, those in their 30s and 40s, um, maybe even in their 20s, who are, you know, kind of pressing the issue of, well, how are we integrating technology? Well, who do we have? Who's, you know, managing the communication process? And all those things become very, very important for engagement in the community, which is what leads to fundraising.
3: Right, right, right. Um, looking at, looking ahead, uh, so you've got the the. The recruitment of the, the board is a, is a very key aspect here, but if you have a board that's never been engaged with fundraising and they've never been uh, told that they need to give themselves, how do you maneuver through that and how, where does that energy come from? Is that uh, from the staff, from the CEO, from the board chair? How does that become successful?
4: Well, that's a good point. You know, you have to think about the whole issue of board engagement. You know, what makes a board member interested in the organization and giving back and, you know, how to harness the passion that they have for the organization and turn it into a, 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 a way that you can have board members become more engaged in fundraising. And um, I I always start by talking about giving. I think that's at the heart of it. You know, to me, the first goal that you have to have with a board uh, when you're moving them from being inactive to being active in fundraising is to talk about 100% board participation in giving, that they have to give themselves. And the reason for that is that that's the core of our business. You know, if they're passionate and they believe in the organization and they make a gift, you know, we all know, we've all worked with volunteers. That makes it much easier for them to go out and make an ask to someone else. I also think that it it becomes, you know, kind of a, um, let's call it a self-fulfilling prophecy. As people give and they go out in the community, and they're excited about what they've uh, given to. They talk it up. They get others interested. And you know, the um, the fact that a, a board has hundred percent participation in giving has become a key factor in a lot of foundation giving, as I'm sure you know.
3: Well, it, it, let's let's talk about that in specific because that has certainly changed in the last decade in terms of a foundation and even corporate support being tied. Uh, to board giving. So why don't you talk a little bit about that so that our, our uh, listeners here today know what, what you mean there.
4: Well, um, many foundations now actually ask as part of their application process what the board involvement in fundraising is and what what the board giving ratio and, and totals are. And um, it is true, I'm simplifying matters slightly by saying 100% participation is where you start, because for a board that hasn't been giving, the point is to start giving. But in a more sophisticated environment, if you're applying to major foundations that are national and that are comparing you to national um, nonprofits, it is possible that you will be asked to provide a, a number like what what percent of your operating funds comes from your board or, you know, it'll, it'll, it'll ask about dollar totals, what is your board actually giving in terms of dollars. So I move sort of. What in do you a,
3: think they're looking for there in terms of uh, is is it are you suggesting it's moved beyond a, a simple acknowledgement of 100% giving that there's now minimum levels or different levels of participation that needs to be reported that could knock you out of the grant making process?
4: Well, what I'm suggesting is that the board has to give in a meaningful way, and meaningful can vary from group to group. Um, you know, a lot of foundations, you know, understand that there are different kinds of nonprofits. I've worked with, um, you know, art museums where the minimum giving level to get on the board is $10,000. I've worked with community foundations where the minimum giving level to get on the board is $100. So you have to think about, you know, um, what the population is that you're drawing from, what the group is, what they're composed of, what their wealth capacity is. But, yes, I think that if you were if you were applying from let's take the art museum as an example. If you were applying for a foundation grant from the art museum, that, that that foundation would expect to see a significant portion of funds coming from the board for operations as well as for capital, if they were in a capital campaign, for instance. You know, what and is significant? Uh, you know, it could range from 10% to 30%, but I think there has to be some sense that the board is behind us. The board is kicking in. The board is there.
3: Well, and you're certainly an expert in the area of uh, capital campaigns and major gifts. We do have uh, uh, several folks on the switchboard. Hang in there. We're going to be right back with uh, your questions uh, for Julia Ingram Walker. We'll be right back uh, after this break.
0: Remember, our podcasts and archives are always available 24 hours a day at TedHart.com. Click on radio links. If you're listening live today, the phone lines are open. Call in and ask a question by dialing 347-324-3080. Now, back to The Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart.
3: And before we uh, head back for uh, questions uh, from uh, those who have called in on the uh, switchboard, uh, just a uh, note that uh, next week here on the Nonprofit Coach is the Green Show. That's our monthly partnership with greennonprofits.org. And next week we will have uh, Amy Frankel, who is the Director and Regional Representative of the United Nations Environmental Program, Regional Office of North America. So make sure you join us here on the Nonprofit Coach next week, May 22nd, Uh, for the uh, Green Show. Uh, Mark your calendars. May 29th and June 5th will be two terrific days for you to catch up on all the podcasts of which we are approaching 100 podcasts here on the Nonprofit Coach. We will not have a live show on uh, May 29th due to uh, Memorial Day and June 5th uh, due to the Techno Conference. So I encourage everyone to sign up uh, and to meet me down in Orlando for the Techno Conference Uh, as we will not have a live radio show that day. We'll come back uh, for June 12th. uh, We will have the Atlas of Giving uh, here on the Nonprofit Coach, releasing their latest numbers. June 19th is the uh, June Green Show, and the final Green Show before our summer hiatus. Of course, the Nonprofit Coach is not live in June and August. We'll be back in September. The final show here before the summer hiatus uh, is June 26th, and Penelope Burke, uh, one of our favorite folks here on the uh, Nonprofit Coach. Uh, will be right back here on the Nonprofit Coach with some of her latest research uh, in giving. So that's what we have in terms of the lineup coming up between now and uh, the uh, end of uh, this session and the start of the summer hiatus. We're now back uh, live with uh, Julia Ingram Walker. Uh, Julia, we do have uh, a question here for you. Uh, caller, you're live here on the uh, Nonprofit Coach. Go ahead. Uh, What's your name and what's your question? Uh, Area code 443. You're with us? Okay. We're going to go ahead and see if uh, we have a question here. Uh, You're live here on the Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart and Julia Ingram Walker. What's your question? Julia, I'm not quite sure if maybe I'm uh, screwing up my own switchboard here. Uh, well, we're uh, we're going to give uh, folks time to uh, uh, get their questions together there, and we're going to take a question uh, from uh, from the emails that uh, have come in. Uh, we actually have a, a question here from uh, Jeff uh, in St. Louis, uh, and he's asking, and I think it, it's probably a follow-up on uh, the the discussion that we had before the break, uh, Julia, and that is. Um I think Jeff wants a little bit more about how much board members should be giving.
4: Well, you know, uh, Ted before we started, I was telling you that I presented um a session on my new book um on helping create a more active fundraising board in Vancouver at, at the AFP conference. And um you know, the the questions afterward from the audience almost all started with how much should my board be giving. So this is obviously something on everybody's mind and you know um let me just start by saying there's no right amount okay i know that's a hard <laughs> it's a hard thing to 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 answer but um i i would give you some guidance in the following way that with a board that has not been doing any active fundraising and has not been engaged i would start focused on participation And so we talked about that a little before the break. 100% participation is where you start. Then maybe a year later, I would start introducing the concept. And by I, I mean the development staff with the CEO, with the chairman of the board, would have a conversation and decide how to introduce the topic. Um, It might come up from the development committee, and that would be a good way, an appropriate way for this kind of topic to be um, aired at the board level, is to have the development committee bring it up. But anyway, I would start uh, uh, after a year of participation, and everybody used to now making a gift, I would begin talking about, well, what level should that gift be? And many organizations, um, and this is my recommendation for those that are starting out with this, that they set the leadership, giving, the leadership annual giving club level as the basic level that they want their board members to give at. For instance, um, when I worked at, at a university, you know, it, it was $1,000 was the gift, that got you into the annual fund you know sort of honorary group and um so that's what i would start with for board members is i would start with the 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 leadership giving level at the annual fund which is usually in most organizations i've worked with somewhere around a thousand or fifteen hundred i wouldn't jump to five thousand or ten thousand unless i had a board that was very wealthy used to giving and had you know uh great capacity like for instance um we talked about the fact that I worked with an art museum. Often, art museums and universities can set their, their board giving at 10,000 or even 20,000. But that doesn't mean that you should start there.
3: Right. And what about, uh, what are the, what about those who uh, maybe can't give at that level, but there's still value to have them on the board? Is there room for a give and get um, approach, or um, is it really, um, you've got to have that check up front?
4: Well, I'm a fan of the give-and-get approach. Um, you know, I mentioned that I had done some work with the Lighthouse for the Blind, and they made a decision um, to do a $1,000 gift from their board for give-and-get. And then they had they had kind of some controversy about it. So what what after discussion with their board, led by the development committee, they made a decision that anyone under 30 or 35, I forget the age, you know, could do sort of a junior level at $500 because they wanted to encourage more young people to join. Then they made a decision that you know anyone, including those young people could could work with the development office to raise the money instead of having to give in and write the check and that ended up being a wonderful decision because a lot of those young people reached out and began to do some you know kind of after work get togethers with friends that would you know bring people in to uh, understand the organization and tour the organization and It just ended up being a way to create outreach for the community and bring in a whole bunch of new donors so uh, to make a long story short, yes, I think you could. I think you can stagger the giving levels based on age. I think you can take certain groups out. Like for instance, um, let's say you have a, a university board. They often have an alumni representative or a faculty representative. So you're not going to require them to give $10,000. So you could take ex officio members out of the requirement. And I do think, but, but they that, would
3: need still need to give something, right? Because uh, wouldn't you? start running afoul of a 100% requirement for yeah. some foundation. Yes, so, yeah. there so
4: would... 100% is your base, and that and you always want to keep that going. But I'm talking about now adding a dollar-level commitment on top of that, which becomes controversial for certain groups because it is true that it's not easy for everybody to give $1,000, and some people might not be capable of that. Um, so, you know, I think you have to know your board. I think you have to get the board to buy in to set the amount. I would not impose this amount. I would have this be a discussion brought to the board by the development committee and let the board decide itself what it wants to do.
3: Right. One of the things that I recommend that boards of directors um, consider um, is a board responsibility policy, and and in that policy it it doesn't just speak to money. It speaks to um, responsibilities for recruiting other board members, participation, uh, committee work, um, advocacy in the community, but also... Um, broaches this topic of uh, minimum levels of giving, um, not not just a set amount, but as a minimum, expecting that board members would seriously consider above that minimum.
4: Yes, you, you make a good point, Ted. I, I don't mean to discuss the fundraising issue in a vacuum. There are other things board members will be asked to do and other procedures and policies that would need to be followed. I'm just trying to kind of focus on Jeff's question, you know, which is what is that dollar level, because that's tricky for a lot of people.
3: It is, and it, and it can also um, uh, become problematic for board members that have been there for a while. Um, but when I work with boards, and I don't know what, what your feeling of this is, is I always um, get, you know, prepare them to say change is not for everyone. And in moving this direction, if you're confident that this is what needs to be done, you also have to understand that you probably will lose some people um, in that process.
4: Well, um, there's some truth to that. But, you know, uh, I think that former board members make great uh, spokespeople, so I hate to lose them. So I sometimes find different ways to keep them involved, you know, by keeping them on an advisory committee or whatever. Right, exactly. I I, I always try
3: to point out that, you know, service on the board is a very um, special distinction, but it doesn't mean that there aren't other ways to serve.
4: Absolutely, yeah. And, you know, I'm not trying to imply that all we want from the board is money. You know, the um, – The AFP group in in Central Florida, in Orlando, had me come in and do a a presentation on this topic um, about three weeks ago, and one of the uh, gentlemen there from a nonprofit brought five of his board members with him to hear the presentation, and afterwards, one of the board members got up and said, it sounds like all you want from us is money, but that's not really true. You know, um, I'm just talking about the fact that if you have board members give, it sets a tone, it sets a... Uh, expectation that they can go out and get other people to give. And you have to start with their own gifts, but there's much, much, much more to it. You know, that's just the first step is to get your board to give. Then you want to engage them in strategic planning and, you know, get them involved in bringing people in from the community and develop new ways of having them outreach, uh, you know, and talk about your organization. So,
1: you know, uh, we're focused on the the money, but the money
4: isn't what it's all about.
3: Right, right. But doesn't involvement in the fundraising process – help prepare board members to be more successful in those other realms by connecting them to their community and connecting them to the financial needs of the organization.
4: Yes, absolutely. And that's another reason why I like to have boards involved in strategic planning, because you have to understand what it is that you're selling. You know, If you're going to talk to somebody and ask them for money for a new building in a capital campaign, you have to understand why the organization needs the new building. And you have to really be able to describe that in real terms with some – a sense of passion and support, or people are going to say, well, you know, what the heck? Uh, There's lots of buildings out there I could support.
3: Right, exactly. We're going to take a a small uh, info break uh, here. Julie, and when we come back, um, I wanted to um, ask you if you could focus in on what are some concrete things that board members can do, some practical advice that we can give to listeners today of things that they could suggest to start getting board members involved if they have not traditionally Then involved, sort of to wet their whistle and to get them prepared. And we'll be right back after this important information.
1: Every day, millions of people are online, many of whom want to help, volunteer, and donate to a good cause. Nonprofit organizations can use many Google tools to reach potential donors around the world and raise more money. And as an approved nonprofit, it doesn't cost a thing. It's all free. Google Grants helps you promote your website with free advertising on Google.com through the AdWords program. With Google AdWords, you create ads and choose words or phrases related to your nonprofit organization. When people search on Google using one of your phrases, your ad will appear next to the Google search results under the Sponsored Links section. AdWords allows you to target certain geographic areas, dates, and times of day for your ads to appear. YouTube for Nonprofits is another tool that can boost donations to your organization. The program offers a number of perks that get your message out there and drive viewers to take action and donate. You can list your organization on YouTube's nonprofit channel and add call-to-action overlays on your videos to drive viewers to donate. Need help analyzing your website traffic and marketing effectiveness? Google Analytics is a free tool that will give you rich insight and help you increase the number of people that visit and donate to your site. Google Analytics can be invaluable to many people in your organization such as development directors, marketing staff, and your web team. There are many other tools that can help you reach more donors and raise funds like Google Checkout where you can process credit card donations with no transaction fee. Google Sites to create a free website and Website Optimizer, where you can figure out the best landing pages to turn site visitors into donors. To get started, apply for Google for Nonprofits today.
3: And we're back live here with Julia Ingram Walker. Julia, as uh, we come back, um, what are some of those practical things that you can actually ask board members to do to get them engaged?
4: Well, let me start with what I call uh, building buy-in. You know, I I think you have to get your board um, um, sort of prepared and active and thinking about their role in fundraising um, in order to get them ready to do the the outreach that's necessary. So I start with a couple of things there. You know, one is um, I think all board members need to know how the fundraising goals are established. You know, so I would spend a little time at the development committee with the Development committee, having them make a presentation to the full board about you know what have we been fundraising, and you know what does it look like here, and what are our challenges? you know, just kind of educate the board about fundraising, get them interested in it as a as a um you know a set of um of challenges you know how can we how can we bring in more donors, how can we uh upgrade current donors you know help help them understand the situation and what the and what the issues are.
3: So breaking it down to be a little bit more approachable than sort of this big need for money.
4: Exactly. Then I would provide training. You know, I do a lot of board training, and I find that people think they know how to ask for money, but they really don't. Um, I think training builds confidence. I think there are real skills in asking for money. Um, You know, how you deal with somebody who says, well, gosh, no, I can't give right now. I don't have the money. You know, your response, how you deal with – Donors who want to lower the amount that you've asked for—you know—should you immediately drop the amount with them, or should you stick to the amount that you started with? These are all these are all skills that can be learned and it can be worked with in a um, a training session in, um, with somebody who's engaged with the board and who can really help them think about how to approach a donor in the in the most positive way. And and what
3: what about the fear factor for for board members and the pushback that uh, you're likely to get?
4: Well, huge. You know, um, I'm very much into now um, what I would call board mentoring. That is training board members in actual calls by taking them in teams. I pair up, you know, an older board member or a more experienced board member with somebody who hasn't done much asking, and, and send them on a call together. Or I have a staff member take a person on a call who hasn't isn't really familiar with the with the the routine. Um, or I have the CEO do some work with their board members. Um, sometimes, to be perfectly frank, the board members know more about the fundraising and the, and the flow of the conversation than the CEO does. So it's the board member training the CEO instead of the other way around. But my idea is to take a team and to take it slowly so that people really get a sense of, you know, how how does the conversation flow, how does the ask work, how do I deal with objections, you know, um, how do I close the deal. Closing is an art all in itself. I mean, you know, we all go to seminars on this, and it's, it's something that you can learn and that you can teach somebody. But the best way to learn it is to actually go on calls and watch it and do it.
3: And, and in that learning uh, process, there also has to be a willingness. So how how do you um, deal with uh, the, the pushback that, you know, I'm not going to be any good at it, I don't know how to do it? Isn't that why we hired a development person in the first place?
4: Yeah, I have a little phrase for that uh, last thing that you said. You know, I view a development staff as – supporting the role of the board, not replacing the role of the board. And I think that you have to think it when you hire someone about presenting it in that way to your board. Um, But to go specifically to your question about fear, um, just like anything else, you know, the more, you can take the mystery out of it and the fear out of it by helping people, um, uh, I call it demystifying the process, helping people understand what the components are, providing education, starting very small. Like, for instance, if I have somebody who hasn't done any fundraising, I'll start with a thank you call program, you know, where the board calls donors and thanks them.
3: Yeah, let me stop you right there because I really want you to talk more about that because I I think that's such a smart strategy to give board members the opportunity to feel connected and invested in the fundraising process. Why does it work so well and how does it run?
4: Well, um, you take donors of a certain level, let's say, you know, $500 and more or $1,000 and more, whatever your organization calls a leadership gift. And, um, you know, for your organization it might be 25000 I don't know. But you take donors of a certain level and you kind of parcel them out among the board and you ask the board to make thank you calls, stewardship calls, as we would call it in the profession. And, um, you know, you provide them with just enough information, you know, what was the gift for, what was the level, when was it made, you know, who was it made by. So you're not having an intimate conversation with somebody about their, you know, future bequests and, and estate planning. It's a thank you. It's a way of having the board engage with a donor, talk about the money, which is what's so hard for some people. You know, thank you for your gift of 25000 That's kind of hard for some people to get out. Um, and also talk about it allows the board member to have a, a connection and to learn how to speak about the organization so that they can say something like, Thank you for your gift of twenty five thousand, and let me tell you some recent activities and challenges that you know your gift has helped to us to um, overcome.
3: And also, they're going to get feedback, and they're going to have that opportunity to connect with someone who's very positive. And, and if they're not, I mean, it's also an opportunity to uh, take corrective action with someone who's very important to you, i.e., a donor.
4: No question about it. And um, you know, I I think all of our board members really want to help move our organizations forward. And what I'm trying to say is that you can create by and you can create through education and through experience and training and mentorship. You can demystify the process of fundraising so that a board member can understand intellectually and emotionally that fundraising is just simply one tool to move the organization forward.
3: I, uh, Julie, if you'll uh, uh, give me just a second, I wanted to uh, just give a shout-out and a thank you Uh, To one of our listeners today, it's Spotlight of Success, SOS. Uh, These folks are connected with the National Association of Women, uh, and uh, they have just uh, uh, chosen to uh, mark us as one of their popular uh, online internet radio shows, and all of our listeners can do that uh, as you go to our page on Blog Talk Radio by going to tedhart.com and click on radio. So thank you to the folks over at Spotlight of Success, uh, for clicking on the button to say that we are one of your favorites. Uh, Julia, thank you for allowing me to give them a shout out uh, today. That's always nice to have people do that. Um, you're giving very, very practical advice, and I really like the positive nature of finding ways to get uh, people involved in the fundraising process that um, is not quite so scary. And, and, that, and I'm talking about those board members who don't have a lot of experience. But sometimes we do have board members who are quite experienced, and that experience can come in two forms. It can be very positive, I was part of a wonderful campaign and I can't wait to roll up my sleeves and help you, or I was in the most horrible experience I've ever had and I never want to be involved in fundraising again.
4: <laughs> well, we hope we don't get a lot of the latter, but I've seen it too. Um, you know, I, again, I think it's a, uh, it almost starts as a psychological challenge, which is how to change someone's attitude about fundraising. And um, you know, I, I, I'm not sold on you know sending somebody who's not ready out in the field to ask for money. I'm not implying that everybody has to ask for money. What I'm saying though is that there, there are things that every board member can do that contribute to the fundraising and development program.
3: That's such an important point, there, uh, Julie. I just, I want to highlight, and I keep doing that throughout the show because you have so many great uh, things that you say. Um, But there are board members who should not be asking for money. They're not prepared, they're not ready, or they're not going to be successful. But all board members do need to be engaged and find roles in the fund. And I
4: have some ideas here, Ted, about specific roles, if you want to get a little practical in our last few minutes here.
3: Absolutely. We've got just a couple minutes left, so this is a great way for you to send our listeners off with some practical advice.
4: Okay, well, here's one. Um, you know, many of us are concerned about how to find the hidden gems, you know, the diamonds in the rough in our own donor base. That is, people who have been giving $100 but who have the capacity to give $100,000. And, you know, we all know that there's electronic prospect re- research and other ways to find these names. But I find that having um, having board members, you know, look through lists of, of, of long-time donors and donors who have loyalty, you know, have been giving three years and more, is an interesting way to engage them. What they sometimes do is they find somebody and have a kind of an aha, moment, an aha moment where they say, look, you know, this is a guy who I think is given, you know, very substantially to another organization in the city, and he's, I see he's giving you $100, and he must like what you're doing. But I think we could talk to him about more. So that's one way I would engage board members is, you know, trying to find the hidden gems in your, um, in your donor base.
3: And that draws back to some of the best places to find your next donor is in your database. We only have a little bit more than a minute left, so let's make sure Julia that our listeners know how to reach you.
4: Sure, um, I have a website, uh, walkercapitalcampaigns dot com, um, and I'm available online at julia i walker at gmail dot com um, at gmail. And also, um, you know, you can go to Amazon and look for my books, Julia Ingram Walker. All you have to do is. Um, Google that, and my latest book is called A Fundraising Guide for Nonprofit Board Members.
3: Terrific. And we've provided a link in the radio links today directly to Julia's uh, website, so you can go there and you can also find her books. Julia Ingram-Walker, the author of Fundraising Guide for Nonprofit Boards and other books. Thank you for joining us here on the AFP Wiley radio show here on the Nonprofit Coach.
4: Hey, thank you, Ted. I've enjoyed it.
3: You're welcome back anytime. Thank you, everybody. Make sure that you join us. Next week on May 22nd for The Green Show here on The Nonprofit Coach.
0: You've been listening to The Nonprofit Coach Radio Show with Ted Hart. Tell all your friends to check out our production schedule and download our iPod and iPad-friendly podcast at tedhart.com. Thanks for listening to The Nonprofit Coach.